Hey, Michael. Hey, Diane. How are you? I'm I'm good. How are you feeling about 2024? I think I'm decidedly in the holding my breath and wait and see camp. What about you? Well, um, that resonates. I, you know, I'm I'm trying to be optimistic here. You know, part of me feels like 2024 is a good number, maybe a good lucky, you know, number and potentially good year. And there's some signs for hope. And personally, it's a building year for me. And so, um, you know, I like hard work and measurable growth and all of those things. So that all feels good. Um, and the realist in me recognizes we've got a lot of big problems that we're facing as a world right now and some struggles in the <laughs> cracks in our foundation. And so I, I want to be real about that. Um, and so I was thinking about, you know, if I had to title it, what would I what would it be? And a few years back, I wrote a paper with some friends that was called Dissatisfied Yet Optimistic. And so Maybe that title still holds true and um, maybe it's going to be the truth of, of this conversation we're about to have today, which I am super excited about. And so um, let's get to that. Yeah, no, I know. I know you are. Uh, I'm excited because we're going to bring uh, Ryan Craig on the show. Longtime friend of mine. Uh, we got to meet probably about a decade or so ago uh, in the education world. He's the founder and partner at Achieve Partners, originally called University uh, Ventures Fund. Uh, but is a PE firm uh, in education. He's written several books, many of which I wish I had written before he did uh, about a new you, disruption and, and things of that nature in higher ed. Uh, and his latest, of course, is Apprentice Nation. It's a great book. I've had him on my uh, podcast, The Future of Education, but we really wanted to have him on Class Disrupted because the topic that he's gone deep on uh, over the last several years has been around these questions of apprenticeships and alternatives to sort of the college for all mentality that is really gripped, as you know, ed reform over the last several decades. And I think Ryan gives us perhaps the best picture of what one of those viable alternatives to the system might be. And I think, frankly, it relates well to your startup also, Diane. So uh, selfishly, I think our audience will learn more, but I also think you will enjoy the conversation also. So Ryan, uh, good to see you. Thanks for Thanks, joining Michael. us. Thanks, Michael. Diane, great to see you. Thanks you for having me. You too. Um, well, let's let's jump in. Um, as Michael just said, Ryan, I my new um, work that I'm engaged in is... Um, really trying to find alternatives to a direct to four-year college pathway for young people. And um, apprenticeships are, in my view, po potentially the most promising of these pathways or could be or should be the most promising. And so I'm excited to talk about them today. I thought before we got started, we could just get some definitional stuff out of the way so people know what we're talking about. And so um, you talk a lot about um, earn plus learn or learn, earn and learn pathways. Just tell us what that is. What does that mean to you? What are we talking about here? Sure. Uh, well, as a category, I guess earn and learn is kind of the uh, opposite or alternative to what I would call uh, train and pray, <laughs> which, is, which is sort of everything that we've had until now, uh, which is, uh, you know, post high school, uh, your, uh, your, your paying tuition, uh, likely taking on debt for some kind of educational program or pathway. Uh, and uh, so you're taking a financial risk, uh, but you're also taking an employment risk because there's no guaranteed employment 
or really any uh, employment outcome uh, at the end of the road. It's train and train and pray. Uh, earn and learn is uh, you actually you, you, it, it's the job first, uh, and that's really where uh, apprenticeship is is different. And you say, you know, the, the most promising, uh, and I, I would agree uh, because it's really the only alternative pathway that truly levels the playing field because it's a job. An apprenticeship is a is a job first and foremost, uh, where uh, you're being paid a living wage uh, and you have built in formal and informal training as well as wage and career progression uh, with, 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 with the apprenticeship. And definite, if we're talking definitions, uh, I'm often asked, well, what's the difference between apprenticeship and internship? Uh, and uh, the difference is sort of what comes first. Uh, with apprenticeship, it's the job first. Uh, you're applying to an employer for, uh, for a job uh, and the training uh, is sort of second. It, it's, it, it, it's built in, but it's, it's sort of secondary to the, to the job. Uh, an internship is uh, obviously a work experience, but it's uh, it's in the context of an educational program. So you're applying to a uh, typically a degree uh, program and either during the term, if it's a co-op program or, or over the summer, uh, you're participating in hopefully a paid <laughs> internship. Um, and then you go back to your educational uh, uh, program. So it's educational program first, job second. Uh, but really, uh, unlike apprenticeship, uh, there's no sense in which, um, or is it, it's rare uh, where the internship sort of automatically becomes a sort of full-time yeah. job with a career, whereas apprenticeship, that's exactly what it does. Uh, yeah. Apprentices don't finish their apprenticeship and then sort of go somewhere else. They just continue with the company as a regular old uh, employee. Yeah, that's um, so helpful. And today we're going to focus on apprenticeships. Um, and so can you just give us a sense of like, where are we in the U.S. right now with with regard to apprenticeships? I think a lot of people have some understanding that or sense that in Europe, this is a big thing. Lots of apprenticeships and apprenticeship model. But where where are we in the U.S.? Well, uh, you're, you'd be correct. We're last. <laughs> As in the apprenticeship league tables, we are last. Uh and uh, among developed countries. Uh, and, the, and, and the book really explores sort of where that is. So in terms of numbers, uh, we've got half a million uh, civilian apprentices in the US. It may sound like a big number, but it's only 0.3% of the, of the workforce. Uh, so uh, your listeners won't be surprised to learn that the, the giants of Central Europe, the, you know, Germany, Aust uh, Austria, Switzerland, they do 10 to 15 times better than we do as a percentage of the workforce. So they're at three to four and a half percent of the workforce. But your, your listeners probably will be surprised uh, to learn that uh, the UK, Australia, Canada, countries that aren't really sort of associated with apprenticeship uh, in the in the public mind, uh, they, they, they do eight times better uh, than we are. And a generation ago, they didn't. A generation ago, uh, they looked a lot like the US uh, in terms of having a small apprenticeship sector uh, most of uh, most of which uh, was in the construction or building trades. Uh, set about seventy percent of our five hundred thousand apprentices in the U.S. are in the in the building in the building trades. Uh, and, and but today it's very common in those countries and in, in the U.K. and Australia to launch a career in financial services, tech, healthcare uh, as an apprentice, yeah. uh, whether or not you have a university uh, degree. So uh, you know the question that I pose in the book is uh, sort of. <laughs> how did they do it? And how come we haven't figured out how to scale apprenticeships across the economy? Yeah. Right. Ryan, on, on this podcast, we talk a lot about sort of alternative uh, post high school pathways that aren't direct to four year college. 
you know, alluded to this earlier and, and the need for K-12 to sort of move away from this college for all or college or bust um, mentality. I, clearly in those visions you just painted out, college is still a big piece of it. If we're talking three to 4% of the workforce, even in Germany, you know, it's not apprenticeship or bust, but why do we need to get out of this mentality of college for all or, you know, sort of that's yeah. it? <laughs> well, because college is not doing a good job serving the students we should care most about. It's certainly doing a good job of serving the, the, the children of the wealthy. Um, they, they do fine. <laughs> uh, whether or not they get into the most selective schools or just, you know, reasonably selective schools, they do just fine. Um, but the students that we care, uh, we, we, we should care most about underprivileged first generation, underrepresented minority uh, students aren't being well served by the current system in terms of completion rates, in terms of affordability, obviously, as demonstrated by the fact that really the overwhelming public policy issue over the past three years uh, in higher education at the federal level has been debt student loan forgiveness, <laughs> which is entirely backward looking, uh, not not forward looking. So we're trying to redress the problems uh, we've we face without you know fundamentally addressing the structure that of, of, of post secondary education. And then of course, the issue I've been most focused on over the last decade, which is employability, where we have a real problem of underemployment, uh, college graduates coming out. Uh, and it's typically not your graduates out of, um, you know, computer science and engineering uh, programs. Uh, they're, they're, they're typically finding their way. But uh, students who are coming out of what I would call lower value or less remunerative or less em 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 employer connected programs, uh, they are, uh, you know, if, if they graduate, uh, they, uh, they're graduating into underemployment uh, in, many, uh, in many cases. And they make less and under, it's, it's persistent. If they're underemployed in their first job, two thirds of the time they're underemployed. Five years later, half the time they're underemployed a decade later. Uh, and, uh, you know, many reasons for this. One is that uh, colleges and universities aren't uh, doing a good job of keeping up with the digital transformation of the workforce and that entry level jobs look a lot different now than they did even 10 uh, years ago, let alone a generation uh, ago in terms of the skills that are being demanded. But another big problem uh, that we're going to see over the next five years is what I call the experience gap, where uh, employers are increasingly looking for uh, experience for what used to be entry-level jobs. So think about cybersecurity. A decade ago, a college graduate with some technical background could probably find their way into getting a job at a security operations center as a tier one analyst. So you're in you know, a first, first row of defense dealing with uh, alerts, figuring out which ones you could resolve yourself, which ones need to be elevated, which ones you could just disregard. Uh, today, uh, that job has basically been automated away uh, and the entry level, the lowest level jobs in the security operations centers uh, are what used to be tier two analysts, uh, which, uh, which uh, demand a CISSP certification, which is three to five years experience. So the idea of an entry level job in cybersecurity it's kind of an oxymoron. And, and my concern is that generative AI is going to do to every <laughs> entry level job what automation has already done to cybersecurity, where, uh, you know, I think back to my first good job as a consultant where I spent, I don't know, 35 hours a week building PowerPoint presentations and uh, no one is going to want their, you know, entry level consultant spending 35 hours a week building PowerPoints anymore. If you're going to maybe spend an hour a week and let you know, ChatGPT, do the work. Um, and the expectation is you'll be spending the bulk of your time doing much higher value, you know, product work, client work, business development work, what have you. 
but which you won't be able to do without experience. So we're going to start seeing for these entry level jobs, as we have for cybersecurity, you know, increasing ex experience requirements, which means that um, we need to figure out a way uh, and, and, and unless we're you know, willing to allow this sort of experience chasm to to develop, we need to figure out a way to integrate real work experience into the educational programs and pathways we have starting at the high school yeah. level, uh, but certainly for college. And uh, apprenticeship is the is the best way I know uh, to do that, because an apprentice, an apprenticeship is a job where you are hiring uh, a candidate based on their potential, based on their interest, mm -hmm. uh, based on their you know diversity, uh, but not based on their specific skills or experience, because they're going to gain that over the course of the apprenticeship. So um, it is it is it is uh, the most promising, <laughs> but it's it going to be increasingly important and promising for that for that reason as a as a as a as a strategy for bridging this experience gap that we're about to see. Ryan, what you are sharing is, you know, I've spent the last 20 plus years in K-12 education in high schools, really for decades focusing on ensuring all of our students were accepted to a four-year college. I thought that was the right thing to do and the thing that was going to lift them, you know, especially mo serving mostly first-generation college-going students. Um, and then what you described is what we started to see in our own data, um, that if they made it through, they were underemployed on the back end, they were carrying significant amounts of debt. And depending on what program or major they went into, it really, it really mattered whether or not what their prospects look like outside. And many of these students don't have the social networks to gain the experience that you're talking about as being so valuable. And so I guess one of the questions I have um, as a recovering college for all K-12 educator is what do you think people like me should be doing right now in the high school space, right. um, particularly like what is the top one or two things that we could do to start shifting in the right direction? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I think um, CTE and career discovery at the high school and even middle school level are a casualty of this sort of college for all mentality. Uh, we've really allowed it to wither on the vine. I did a piece uh, a couple months ago about the fact that, you know, the sort of uh, AP honors uh, industrial complex with its, you know, higher GPA. <laughs> College is the only pathway you sort of have to take those those courses. And you have to take that path, which leaves, you know, no room for, you know, CTE kind of withers on the vine uh, in that uh, in, in that case. So, you know, I, I but but I get it right. If there aren't alternatives uh, to for your college, then what's the point of career discovery at the high school? So it is sort of a chicken and the egg problem. Uh, you know, I'm very focused on how do we build out that, you know, post high school infrastructure of earn and learn uh, pathways so we can kind of get to where we are in the UK now, which is, you know, this last fall for the first time, uh, graduating high school students in the UK uh, could look at the UCAS uh, portal, which is kind of the common app of the UK, and see uh, listed alongside all the university uh, programs, all the apprenticeship options. It's in one, in one, in one portal, in one, in one place, and they can look with their guidance counselor and they can say, okay, here are, you know, some real earn and learn options that I might pursue. Uh, here are some tuition-based options I might, I might pursue. So that, that's the ultimate, the ultimate goal. But I think beginning to work on, um, you know, CTE uh, uh, and career discovery, I, I did a profile of the superintendent in Winchester, Virginia, um, that Ted Dintersmith uh, introduced me to, 
who uh, just did an, is doing an incredible job of really elevating CTE and almost making it mandatory that every student has to pursue a CTE yeah. uh, pathway. Um, and so that, that, that I think then uh, will, you know, um, you know, that that's on the, we, we, we need to prime the pump both on the supply side and the demand side. So right. do that at the high school level. So Ryan, I want to stay with that just for a moment, because I think part of the narrative that we often hear when people are skeptical of sort of the non four-year college pathway uh, is, and I can't, I mean, I can't count the number of times I've been on a panel with college presidents, of course, being the ones to say this, of saying, well, the people that are clamoring the loudest uh, for alternatives to college are those who are going to send their kids to college. And so they have this real skepticism that sort of it's, it's for them, but not for me. Why are you uh, uh, relegating them, if you will, to something lower? In Apprentice Nation, you make a pretty compelling counter-argument around the data um, on this, but, but I'd love you to just walk us through that uh, a little bit more. And, and part of this I acknowledge is we only have 500,000 apprenticeships in this country, you know, we're, 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 there's not really a data set in this country anyway to, to sort of play with no, this, but, but walk us through it. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I just, I just think that's inaccurate. I mean, I hear every week from, you know, a charter school uh, organization that is, you know, focused on, you know, how do we, how do we help build new path? How do we facilitate pathways? How do we build a sort of, you know, plus two transition program to something other than college? Because they're, you know, like you, Diane, they see their students, uh, you know, graduating and, and either uh, not completing or completing and graduating into under underemployment. So it's clearly it's clearly not not working uh, for, uh, for 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 everyone. So, I, yeah, I just don't I, 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 I don't I don't buy that uh, I, th that argument. Uh, earlier this season, um, we had Todd Rose on the podcast, and a lot of his re research is showing that you are not alone, that students, families, and in fact, most Americans actually believe in earn to learn options. They want um, education to have a tighter connection to work. They actually care about career and work, and they want education to be a means to that end versus an end in and of itself, which is sort of how it is um, <laughs> evolved to be positioned. Um, and, and as we both said uh, multiple times now, apprenticeships are sort of the most compelling model of this. Um, and so, um, I, I'm curious, um, you know, we're, we're, they're not very prevalent yet. And, um, and so I'm wondering what we can do about that. And I also just wanted to tell you about an experience we had. We had a group of interns in my new company. And so we actually asked them to do this little experiment. They're high school students. And we gave them 100 apprenticeships in California um, that theoretically they should be eligible for as they graduate from high school. You know, the apprenticeships are open to 18 plus. And we asked them to try to like, figure out how they could apply to and if they had a chance at these apprenticeships. And so of the hundred, um, I mean, it was mind boggling. These websites, th this is not a friendly process at all. They go to the website, there's usually like a phone number or an email that they have to call or email, just a cold email that they have to send. So they email, you know, a hundred, they only get responses from a third 
of a hundred out of a hundred, you know, 30, only the 30 responses. And many of them were redirecting them back to, oh, go, oh, look at the website, which is circular because the website says to email these people. And when they actually talked to people, they were often told, you know, it says 18, but we don't really want 18 year olds. And so I'm just curious, it seems like we have a lot of work to do and and so much work. <laughs> so, much work. so many things there. So first of all, I don't know what list they were using, but uh, if they were to use the most authoritative list out there, which is the Federal Department of Labor Rapids database of registered apprenticeship programs, uh, they'd be in for a disappointment. Uh, because uh, I I uh, use that database as the basis for uh, the appendix in my in my book, which is a directory of apprenticeship uh, programs outside the building and construction trades. Not to not to say that those aren't good apprenticeships, but right. the, the point of the book is how do we we're actually doing okay in the building trades? How do we expand apprenticeships beyond the beyond the building trades? So uh, there are about six thousand apprenticeship programs in the U.S. Uh, in the RAPIDS database that are not in the construction trades. Uh, and so I asked the question, well, how many of those are actually real? <laughs> Meaning where I could apply for a job as an apprentice uh, tomorrow uh, and I'd be considered because they're actually hiring apprentices. And so we went through that whole list and of those 6,000, only 200 uh, are real. Yeah. The rest of them are what I call paper apprenticeship programs. Uh, which are uh, primarily a, a kind of relic of how we've been uh, funding uh, apprenticeship programs at the federal level. So one one reason we're not we're we're doing so poorly is that the federal government, while they've increased uh, apprenticeship funding over the last decade, uh, and they've been actually trying to fund uh, intermediaries, which is one of the key points of the book, which is that employers don't do these things on their own. Right. Colleges don't do them on their own. They're usually set up and run by uh, intermediary groups. Like in Germany, it's um, uh, chambers of commerce uh, that uh, do the m most of the work of setting up and running these, these programs. In the building trades, it's unions uh, who, are, who, who are doing it. So the question is, who are those intermediaries going to be? So the Department of Labor has tried to identify and fund intermediaries, but of course they've been funding groups that are really good at applying for Department of Labor grants, namely workforce boards and community colleges who get these five or $10 million grants. And then here's what they do. They develop the curriculum for the formal training, the related technical instruction, RTI component of the apprenticeship. They register the program and then they sit on their hands and wait for a employer to come along and say, wow, if only I could find curriculum for the RTI, I'd launch my own apprenticeship <laughs> program. But of course that's the easy part of apprenticeship. Right. The hard part is convincing an employer to hire and pay a worker who's not gonna be productive for a period of time. Right. And all the other stuff too, the mentoring and the, you know, recruiting and 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 serving as the employer of record, all that stuff. So uh, as a result, that's how you get from six thousand down to two hundred. Mm -hmm. uh, so so, but even if they're, but then even if they're reaching the the two hundred who are actually hiring, you're absolutely right. Uh, apprenticeships are not designed uh, sort of post high school right now. Uh, largely, I think, just because there's so few uh, of them. Uh, so every time you actually. Uh, launch an apprentice, uh, a, a cohort of apprentices. And I can say this is a, you know, our, uh, at Achieve, what we do uh, is uh, we buy companies in sectors where there's a talent gap in tech and healthcare, and we build apprenticeship programs into those companies. So they become talent engines for their talent starved sectors. And I can tell you that every time we launch a cohort, we have 100, 200, 300 applicants for every seat in the cohort, which is, you know, so 
much as we would like to um, make them available to 18 year olds, it's hard for an 18 year old to uh, compete with a 23 or 24 year old who's applying for that apprenticeship uh, program. We're probably going to hire that 23 or 24 year old. So, and this is this is one of my pet peeves, which is that uh, if you talk to the philanthropies, the big philanthropies who are involved in um, uh, apprenticeship uh, today, and I'm not sure, well, maybe I'll name names, but Gates Foundation, um, uh, they they um, they actually don't care about apprenticeship broadly. All they care about is youth apprenticeship, uh, which yeah. is apprenticeship for 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 kids in high school, which sounds good. But the hard part is if you can't convince an employer to hire a 24-year-old apprentice, you're never going to convince them to hire a 16 or 17-year-old who's still in high school. Mm. That's like an order of magnitude more difficult to do. And so we need to build, we need to focus on building the apprenticeship infrastructure we need for regular old apprenticeships uh, before we begin focusing on what's, what are called youth, uh, youth apprenticeship uh, programs. So yeah, it's it's not the system is not set up uh, today uh, post post high school, and a big reason is we're just not funding funding it. Like in the in the in the UK, you know, at their peak, they were spending four or five billion pounds a year on a on apprenticeship, which in, based on the size of the U, U.S. economy would be more like forty billion dollars uh, a year. Uh, we have been uh, we've been spending less uh, than one one hundredth of that. Uh, so if we've been spending four hundred million. Uh, a year. Uh, so uh, we have a lot and just, have, you know, that that's a, a even a smaller fraction of what we spend on, you know, tuition based post-secondary education. That's one one thousandth what we spend on. Uh, so it's one one hundredth of what we should be spending on apprenticeship. It's one one thousandth of what we do spend. And uh, if you compare the funding that an apprentice receives, the public funding that an apprentice receives compared to a college student for every dollar of taxpayer support that apprentice is receiving, a college student receives fifty dollars. Wow. So those, those ratios are just way off. Every other developed country is like an order of magnitude or more. In the UK, it's two orders of magnitude higher on earn and learn and apprenticeship than than we are. And what does that what does that do? Well, it actually it, it makes a big difference uh, because it allows intermediaries to um, market and sell uh, apprenticeship programs to employers, which is what's, what's needed. So in, in the yeah. UK, you have, you know, uh, apprenticeship service providers like Multiverse who can go to, uh, you know, big companies and say, we're, you know, we'll set up and run an apprenticeship program for you. And it's totally turnkey. All you need to do is put this apprentice on your payroll at, at the reduced apprentice wage. And that sounds pretty good, but everything that Multiverse does is covered by the government. Uh, here, Multiverse does the same thing. Uh, when they go to a U.S. employer, they say, oh, but it's going to cost you $15,000 per apprentice in program fees because there's no funding associated yeah. with a apprenticeship. And so you may say, well, what about the $400 million that we're spending? That's not going to intermediaries like Multiverse. It's going to uh, community colleges and workforce boards who aren't currently building uh, apprenticeship uh, programs. So you know, we've, we've, we, we, part of the problem is that uh, we viewed apprenticeship as uh, just another workforce development or training program. Uh, and yeah. we've lumped it in with all these other training programs, most of which are uh, pretty, pretty uh, <laughs> ineffective. Uh, yeah. And um, uh, other countries don't do that. Other countries have a separate funding mechanism for 
uh, apprenticeship because they recognize they're different. They're jobs. They're jobs first, and they start with an employer willing to hire an apprentice. So there's just a lot. That's a lot of what the book is about. Is um, you know sort of a po policy fixes uh, for this. Unfortunately, uh, a month after the book came out, the Department of Labor came out with their new, uh, their fancy new apprenticeship regulations, which is 800 pages of uh, new uh, new hoops that uh, that employers would have to jump through in order to uh, uh, register an apprenticeship program with no incentives whatsoever to do so, which is just the opposite of what needs to happen. We need to streamline apprenticeship uh, registration, focus on the things that that matter. Uh, is it a good job? Uh, does it have career progression associated yeah. with it? Um, and actually provide funding uh, for it. I, I read about, um, I read your recent piece on those regulations and I, I will have, I will confess that I had a moment where I was like, oh my gosh, this feels exactly like my charter school experience where we started in the right place, where create schools that serve kids, name the outcome that you're going to get. And that's yeah. what you're held accountable to. But over time, we have been regulated and re-regulated and, you know, back to sort of the old system. And I was reading your piece about the, this, you know, 800 page set of regulations. I was like, this feels exactly like what I experienced as someone who was trying to do this in the charter sector. And it made me wonder, you know, there's always interest groups and there's always, look, look I was reading through how, what you summarized. I get why they want people to do all these protective things and whatnot, it's, you know, not yeah. for bad reasons, but, but, but you have to balance the risk and you have to be thoughtful. Here. Oh, yeah. like, who are the blockers? Like who's, who's, who's contributing to these 800 pages? Who's yeah. Blocking? These are, these are building and construction unions um, okay. who would very much like to keep apprenticeship as their own little sort of private uh, thing uh, for the most part. And it's um, uh, bureaucrats who have never worked in the private sector and actually don't know what's involved in uh, convincing an employer to uh, hire an apprentice. Uh, there aren't really, I mean, the part of the problem is they're, they're up until last year with the creation of Apprenticeships for America, which is this new trade association of apprenticeship intermediaries. There had been no voice for uh, employers of apprentices. Okay. Um, so um, we're, we're, we're working hard uh, on that. Uh, but um, that, that, that's what's necessary. And we need to get the folks like the Business Roundtable and Chamber of Commerce uh, in, uh, in, in this discussion. So I, I'm, I'm confident that these regulations are not going to be uh, uh, have the force of, of, of law uh, as, as currently proposed, but they're just going the wrong direction. Uh, so, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of work, uh, to do, to do here. And it's just, it's so, it's so important, um, to, you know, to think of a, of a country where we could, we could have as many earn and learn, uh, options as we have tuition based, uh, options. I, I think that it's a big reason why we have such social and political sort of, uh, you know, discontent, uh, yeah. to you, you have, you know, almost half the country who sort of sees this bright shining digital economy but feels like the you know these jobs are out of reach because they're told that they need to you know run the gauntlet of you know a four year degree which can be five or six years in many cases yeah. and with no guarantee uh of any uh employment outcome and uh they just feel, feel like it's unre it's unaffordable and unrealistic and life's going to get in the way. So why bother? And 
you know, they, they, I've, as I toured around the country uh, talking about my, my book in the fall, I would start my talks with talking about, you know, what I call the song of the summer last summer, which was uh, rich men north of Richmond uh, yeah. by Oliver, Oliver Anthony, where, you know, it's so basically he's complaining about his crappy job. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's sort of what they, you know, they, they, you know, all the only jobs available are these bad, bad jobs that are breaking my back with no, you know, career progression uh, available. And we need to, we need to address that. I mean, this is, and it's such an obvious, um, uh, you know, political benefit for the, you know, Democratic Party. I don't understand why the Democrats don't become the party of earn and learn and and, and apprenticeship. It's they believe they they're not going <laughs> to lose support among the you know the, the university educated uh, yeah. point, but they they we we desperately need to um, uh, support and and it's obviously that's where the other side is you know getting you know their their momentum um, yeah. from. Let's 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 stick with employers for a moment, because what I'm understanding is the financial incentives are not there for them the way they are in other countries right now, at least and we need to work on that. Um, so what are their incentives to create a, a, and grow apprenticeships? How do we pitch this to them? <laughs> you know, no, I mean, they're none really uh, today. It's, it's just all all cost, uh, you know, with the potential long term benefit of you need to develop a proprietary um, uh, new talent uh, talent source. But if you look at, you know, where apprenticeships are, uh, you know, where they exist today outside the construction trades, if you look at my directory of my book, you know, m many of these are, you know, subsidiaries of Swiss or German companies where they've just been instructed by the head, head office to launch an apprenticeship program. Um, but again, there's no, there's no funding uh, associated, associated with like technically, you can go to your local workforce board and apply for funding once you're a registered apprenticeship program and then you get on the state uh, ETPL list, but it is a three, four, five part process with no guaranteed outcome and very limited funding as a result. So most employers don't, don't, don't bother. So the big, the big, the, you know, the, the way other countries have done it is you incentivize these intermediaries. Uh, you fund them, you provide formula based funding. So they know every apprentice hired and trained, uh, they get paid uh, for it. And then uh, you have, you know, in the UK, you have this ecosystem, this very robust, healthy ecosystem of 1,200 intermediaries that are in the business of running around, uh, knocking on employers' doors, saying, hey, would you like us to set up and run an apprenticeship program for you at no cost uh, yeah. to you? Um, that's something that lots of employers can get behind. Uh, right. You won't find an employer in the US that's sort of been similarly uh, approach. And if they've been approached, it's, you know, it's going to cost them $15,000 program yeah. fees per, per apprentice. And so no, thank you. Or if, if, if it, if they do, uh, it's a sort of, uh, you know, corporate and social responsibility uh, initiative that is not going to scale. I, I was at a meeting at the, at the U S chamber uh, in DC in the fall and there were four or five fortune 500 companies in the room and they were bragging about their apprenticeship programs. And one of them said, well, we hired four security <laughs> apprentices last year. We hired, you know, eight. And it's right. a joke, right? Based on the size right. of these, based on the size well, of these companies. 
It's so not scalable. We've we've had many conversations with um, people, such good intent, well-intended people who are mostly working in the community colleges. So they've gotten these grants, as you said, to be these yeah. intermediaries. They have one little teeny boutique program that they're personally passionate about. And yeah. they're like, this one person's running around trying to get employers to connect to their program. Like it's a one person shop. Well, you know, you know? We, we all know that uh, academic institutions, uh, including community colleges, are not sort of well set up as sort of sales and marketing uh, no. organizations, which is what's required here. Um, so we, you know, almost a decade ago now, sort of we, we had this innovation that like we're going to connect this, you know, last mile training with staffing companies. We began buying staffing companies. And that was sort of the start of our workforce strategy, but that works really well uh, because staffing companies have, uh, you know, are, they're already in the business of supplying talent to hundreds or thousands of clients who can't find talent. And so now, you know, why not, you know, offer new, new, new talent, uh, you know, entry level uh, talent right. as a, as a product. So that's the, that's the mentality. I, I do think that uh, there are some, you know, we're going to see community colleges and perhaps even some four-year institutions figure this out okay. in time. Apprenticeships for America has a, a grant from Strata to um, sort of chart a path for community colleges to become what we call high intervention intermediaries, uh, which are the folks who are actually actively selling <laughs> apprenticeships and setting up and running turnkey apprenticeship programs for employers. So I do think we're going to see a, you know, who, who, you know, the ASU of, you know, sort of apprenticeship or, you know, the WGU of uh, apprentice. Like, I, I do think that will, that will happen, but it's going to take a pretty sizable change from what these institutions do or are capable of today. Well, that feels like the most hopeful we've gotten in this conversation. I want to be hopeful about this. So maybe we'll, well I think we, you know, we need to keep the vision in mind. Like the, the, yeah. the vision is like, it's, 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 it's all hope, right? I mean, yeah. you know, the, the idea hope. of uh, someone being able to sit at the end of high school and look at uh, an equal number of earn and learn uh, options uh, with, and that's something that I think, um, you know, politically uh, everyone is in favor of. You know, right. I don't care what your political like. Who's who's against that? No. Idea. So, so so the debate is really about tactics. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think most people would agree that the the eight hundred pages of new regulations uh, around apprenticeship is not the answer. Are not going to uh, excite yeah, people. Not going to excite in. people to come in. Uh, new new funding. So California, Calif we haven't talked about California. So California. Uh, a year ago, launched the first formula-based funding for apprenticeship in the country, the apprenticeship innovation funding. So uh, you, as an employer or intermediary, you get uh, $3,500 for every apprentice you hire and train, period. It's, it's a formula. And that's exactly what's what's needed. If you think about sort of how we've built our post-secondary education system, our tuition-based system, it's formula-based funding, right? Uh, that the, the funding travels with the student. We need the same with Earn and Learn. The funding needs to travel with the with the apprentice. Uh, and that's part of what, you know, I, I wrote last week, which is we have to start being so, I, I get it. The folks on the left side of the aisle are obsessed as a result of the sort of, you know, for-profit college uh, scandals, uh, and there were a lot of them, with making sure that no, not a single workforce dollar flows to a uh, bad actor in the private sector. So I, I, I get that. But we are truly throwing the baby out with the bathwater uh, if that's our primary focus uh, here. There are ways in which we can yeah. safeguard enough and really begin to catch up with every other developed country uh, here. Well, I love that um, note as a place to wrap, at least for today, um, feels entrepreneurial and hopeful to me and like 
it's possible and we know how to do it. Um, so thank you for being in this conversation with us. Um, I hope we get to come back and have it again and again because we're making progress. Uh, you can count on it. We're, I mean, we are making progress, whether or not, uh, you know, there's, uh, I can tell you, at the, if not at the federal level, at the state level, there are a whole bunch of states who are interested in, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, 20%, 40% of their, you know, high school uh, graduates are, you know, able to access apprenticeships. And, um, you know, we're there, they have a willing, willing partner uh, on, uh, on, on our side. That's awesome. Terrific. Should we do a quick, uh, quick wrap up with what we're reading or watching? If that, uh, if if that works, Ryan, we're going to put you on the hot seat first because being uh, being connected to Hollywood, you always have interesting movie and TV <laughs> I just, recs. So. I w- uh, well, I can tell you what I'm reading. What I just uh, finished reading, uh, which sure. is uh, this this book by. Um, Margaret McMillan called uh, Paris 1919, six months that changed the world uh, about what happened at the, uh, you know, that led up to the terrible Treaty of Versailles in 1919 and sort of set the stage for the next century of of conflict uh, everywhere in the world. November 11th, if I recall, uh, 1919 is the day. Yeah, so that was a terrific, terrific book. Uh, in terms of uh, my, 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 you know, talk about my, my wife is a uh, the showrunner, co-showrunner of The Handmaid's Tale, uh, so that's why I live out here in LA. Um, but we actually like very different things, <laughs> 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 which is why we get along so well. Otherwise, uh, but I've, I actually just discovered um, the Hulu uh, series Fargo, uh, which is ah. terrific. I know lots of people have. I'm only on season two, which actually I like even better than season season one. So um, it's, I love the nice. whole. I'm from Canada, so I I love the whole sort of north north central uh, aesthetic. Uh, feels feels very. I feel very at home. <laughs> love it. What about you? Well, um, I watched a movie this past week on a strong request from a friend because he wanted to talk about it, and it's called "Leave the World Behind." It has some big star power behind it, so Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke and Marshall Ali and even um, Kevin Bacon. And it, I, I'm sort of speechless. It's um, it's it's provocative for sure um and about where a warning sign to all of us i would say um and um like beautifully done in a lot of ways warning like if we don't get apprenticeships right what will happen exactly Exactly. that's where i'm gonna that's where i'm gonna end mine at y'all so i i've been reading uh you'll see where my headspace is for both of you i've i've finished reading in search of anti-semitism which was written by bill buckley back in 1992 Uh, And then Barry Weiss, uh, her 2021 book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism. Reading the Buckley book, I mean, Ryan, you you were at Yale uh, just after. I just want to say I I saw Bill Buckley in 1992 at Yale playing harpsichord. He came to give a harpsichord, (laughs) Ah. which is like nothing is more Bill Buckley than that. Like, I'm coming, going to come to Yale and play the harpsichord for the undergraduates. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Nothing is more so, but I was just the cra- the echoes from 1992 to what we hear now were just crazy to me because 
you know, Buckley's book was sort of anti-Semitism used to be the domain of the right. We've been chasing it out and here comes the left. There's growing presence on college campuses and among faculty. There's questions about what constitutes it. How does Israel fit in? What's fair criticism? What's not? It's it's very interesting. And so it, it's all widened my thinking. But I guess I would say uh, maybe earn and learn is a way out of those conversations to something that actually helps individuals make progress. And so that's my hope for the new year uh, for, for all of you listening. And Ryan, thanks for joining us. And for all of you listening, we'll see you next time on Class Disrupted.